to another episode of the Design Vertic podcast. I'm Imran Hussain, Vice President of Design and User Experience at Systems Limited, and today I'm having a conversation with Hassan Habib. Don't forget to check out the behind the scenes outtakes at the end of the show. Welcome to the show, Hassan. Thank you. Great to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah. So we're recording in Karachi today, and I have here with me Hassan Habib, who is the founder of Designers, a service design agency. And you've been having a, a busy week. Yeah, very busy. Traveling week. around the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, interior sand, and it was pretty good. Yeah, so you mentioned you went to Monjidaru. Yeah, Monjidaru, it was awesome, never been there before, and it, I just saw how you know how that little town or little city was planned and it blew me away that how could they do that so many years ago so i'm curious like can you kind of share like what, what it was like what the experience was like and like what what you thought was really interesting about uh, the whole monjidaru kind of town design and and maybe how it contrasts to our, what was happening today in our cities well i I think we need to bring the urban planners back from the past. Uh, again, it was a pit stop on the way back from Larkana, and mm. we just we were done our research, and we thought, you know, why don't we make a stop? It was early in the morning. It was on the way back, and when we got there, it was pretty amazing because we were the only people there, and it was empty. So it was me and my teammates with the client, and. We were the only ones there, and it felt like the city belonged to us. And when we were walking really? through it, it it really felt like we were walking through history because there were no tourists there. So it was just you in that space, and you could really take it all in. You could observe every little thing about you know how the structures were created, how the drainage system was made, and they actually have a drainage. System. They had a drainage system and a covered drainage system. Really. And um, so Monjadaru is, how old is that civilization? 2,000 years old or? No, no, no. It's before Christ. It's like 2,000, it's more than 2,000 BC, I think. 2,000 BC? Yeah, it's around the same time as the Egyptian civilization. And it, 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 it is one of the oldest civilizations. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't think many uh, people in Pakistan have actually visited Monjadaru. Was that your first time? It was my first time. And I think I would have never decided to make a trip out to Monjadaro. Like, I'd always heard about it. Mm-hmm. It was just too far to go, like, as a, as a trip that I wanted to do. So, so, how far is it from Karachi? About seven hours. Okay, so that is a distance. So, it's never a day trip. Right, right. So, uh, the fact that I was on the way back from our field visits, it just, it helped out. Right. So would you recommend that people visit Mahanjadara? Definitely. If you're into history, if you're into urban planning, if you're into that kind of stuff, uh, it's definitely worth, definitely worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Especially because it's like, it's a hidden treasure. Like, they had discovered it uh, out of nowhere. And the British had kind of discovered it because... People were bringing bricks from Mohanjadaro to help build the railway tracks. Really? Yeah, and then the British people were like, where are you bringing these bricks from? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's just 
from like our backyard basically <laughs> and then they were like wow and then they started digging and then that's how they discovered it so mm-hmm. it was it was very neat yeah so i, I think it's a, it's a bit of a shame that uh, that uh, you know living in pakistan we're really disconnected from our history like from you know the culture and, and like what's happened in the past you know i, I think i think it's important to know uh, about the land and the people who came before us and um, so I, i hope i hope everyone gets a chance to explore the history of pakistan no definitely because there's so much you can learn hmm. right see what how people did things what what they did what was their thought process behind it and what worked for them and how we could possibly learn from their processes right great uh, so hasan today uh, Uh, we'd like to hear like more about you and um so so tell me um who are you who am i yeah what are you doing well i've never been asked that way who are you well i call myself a multidisciplinary designer mm-hmm. and the reason i call myself a multidisciplinary designer is because i've practiced multiple things from communication design to motion design uh interactive design and now experiential design so that's kind of who i am like a mix of a lot of things so when did you first become interested in design and when did you kind of realize that this is something that you really want to do uh as a career so initially i I kind of wanted to design but it was more from like an illustration point of view. And when was this like? This was in 2007. And and at what stage in your I was about point? 17 or 18 years old. Okay. So I I really enjoyed art uh and I was into fine arts but I wanted to go into the more designing part of it like not mm-hmm. just painting but like photoshop and illustrator and make cool graphics and and the funny thing is um i applied to all the universities a year early like in 12th grade versus 13th grade okay and i got into all the unis i wanted to go to except the design school and and where was that that was uh, in toronto at the ontario college of art and design in fact okay. i got rejected for them from them twice in a row uh-huh and i was fortunate enough for for them to give me an interview the second time okay. and the interview they rejected me during the interview and i and when i asked them why they said your fine arts is beautiful and great but you have no idea what design is so that kind of led me on to really questioning and thinking about okay what is design for me design at that time was uh painting pretty pictures right and and making things and and when i actually went to my second then i i switched my school and i went to the vancouver film school where i did a foundation in art and design and that's when i began to scratch the surface of what design really was so so what 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 is design how would you define design how would i define design um i think design is a tool or a method that allows you to take an existing situation and make it better than what it already is 
that's that's sort of a good definition. Yeah. 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 So a lot of people, in, in fact, most people, when they hear the word design, then they, they do tend to think of how things appear, mm-hmm. the aesthetic part of it. Yeah. And um, so when did you kind of realize that it's not just aesthetics that constitute design? When did that realization uh, come about? So that real, yeah, that realization uh, came to me actually during my master's degree. Okay, and so you did a master's in. I did. So my you? first master's was in digital media management. Okay. And before, where, where from? Uh, from a school called Hyper Island. Okay. <clears throat> and before that, uh, basically, I was practicing communication design, interaction design, and motion graphics, and. For me, design was mainly about making, making pretty pictures that move, making pretty pictures that people interact with, logos and things like that. And my initial thought to going for my first master's was, okay, I'll do a management degree. And this is about the time when I wanted to move back to Pakistan. Okay. So I decided to do the management degree so I could get a better job coming home Mm -hmm. because that piece of paper really is important in today's day and age. Uh, and that's where I stumbled, stumbled upon the field of design thinking. And I was like, wow, I never knew that I could apply design as a process of, you know, problem solving or problem intervening. Mm-hmm. So that's, so that's how, what, yeah, that's how, how it all started. started. Right, okay. So then once you did your master's degree and this kind of realization came about, then what did you kind of, did you plan your career? Did you want to, what was the, the aim? What was the goal? So, um, so t- the, t- tell us a bit about your professional journey. Yeah, so my, my, my goal then kind of, be, like when I discovered design thinking and how it can actually help people, then it kind of became my mission. Actually, it was always my mission. When I got rejected from design school, maybe uh-huh. years before that, I had made it, I had made a promise to myself that I don't want any Pakistani not to know what design is. Mm-hmm. So everything moving forward from that point onwards became a mission about learning, really learning what design was. So people of Pakistan could relate to that, could at least know that on the most basic level. They understand what art is on a basic level, but they should also understand what design is on a basic level. Mm-hmm. So after doing my first master's, um, I decided to stay back in Pakistan because I felt that the most impact would be in Pakistan. And I did a pilot project with this company called Husseini Blood Bank. And they have another division called Husseini Thalassemia Center, okay. which was uh, a place where people who have low red blood cells need to go for blood transfusions mm-hmm. twice a month. So I did a service design project with them in which we studied two things. One was how to improve patient experience and also how to improve service provider experience because they both go hand in hand to design an overall human experience. Mm -hmm. And after doing that pilot project, um, people wanted to work with me. But I hadn't officially studied experience design or service design as a discipline. I had only done a, a thesis in it. Okay. So that that uh, made me go back to uni and do a second master's purely in experience design. Okay. And uh, 
where did you study the second time? Same right? school. Same so school. So same school, Hype Island. I was actually the first batch to go through their experience design program. So what was what was it like at Hyper Island? It's a pretty cool name uh, yeah. for a university. So Hyper Island, it's very hard to define Hyper Island. So what was Hyper Island to me? Sounds, a, sounds like it's kind of fantasy. It, it's, it is a fantasy land. Honestly, it, I think they have an identity crisis themselves. Because <laughs> it's hard for them to define it themselves. Because uh-huh. what it was for me in my first year was very different for me in the second year. Mm-hmm. But what Hyper Island does is it shapes you as an individual to grow your soft skills. It's not a master's where you're like, I'm going to really get some hard skills. And it's designed in a way where they throw you in the deep end. So they, they don't focus, they're not heavy on method and technique. Not too much. Not too much. Okay. Mainly on uh, giving you access to knowledge and mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. And what they do is it's primary like set up like TED Talks. So you have a lot of talks. You don't have like lectures. Right. And then they, the second part of it is they have to integrate you into industry from day one. So they give you a team. Mm-hmm. You have a module. So that, say, for instance, our first module was design thinking. Uh, they give you an industry mentor to guide you through that process. And then they give you an industry brief. So basically, they're providing you with some guidelines, some inspiration, and then a mentor, and then uh, the actual uh, a project where you can actually practice it yeah, and so, learn. Yeah, so basically so learn by doing. It's primarily learn by doing. That's their main philosophy. So it's yeah. all learn by doing, and then a lot of reflection after that. Seems like a, like a great model for learning. It's great. So it's like you're working in an agency before mm-hmm. you actually work at an agency. Right. Because design, what I, what I feel is that design is a practice-based discipline. Uh, there's only so much that you can or should kind of learn just by reading or listening. But most of the learning comes through actual practice. And I think any, any place that kind of incorporates or, or has an emphasis on the practice part, uh, I think it's, it must be a good place to go and learn. No, definitely. I would definitely recommend it if anybody wanted a, a serious hands-on learning. Right. That that's, sounds really interesting. You are listening to the Design Better Podcast. So you were telling me about your journey. Um, so you went to Hyper Island and then, and then what? And then I came back and I wanted to practice design thinking and experience design and service design. And did you have a clear path when you came back? No, not at all. Not, not a clue? So there's, at the time when I came back, there was no agency that I knew of that was practicing design thinking or experience design or service design or even knew of it. Mm-hmm. And so I got sucked into the design of advertising because that's the main place uh, where design was really happening. So I became the head of a design department at an agency where I was just pumping out everything that I was doing before I had done my master's. Right. So it was very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were not doing meaningful work. We were just pushing out ads and products for people that I don't think really needed those products. So it was just we were just creating demand and hype. 
and uh, that led me to a lot of frustration and I said look I need to do this and um, one of the clients that we worked with Multinet uh, their CEO um, kind of became a mentor to me while I was working at the agency mm-hmm. and I, I went to him one day really frustrated saying that you know I want to do experience design and I'm thinking about starting my own thing what is the advice you would give to me okay. and I have no idea what he said about the advice but what I do remember is that he said that okay great here are two or three projects do it and that was like music to my ears and because of that push it gave me the confidence to start my own company so he put me on a retainer for six months and he gave me the flexibility and freedom to just do it so basically he became like your angel yeah he became yeah, yeah. that was my first client and, uh-huh. and that was a kickstarter and then uh, I hired Ali to join my company uh, Ali had been working with me previously in my last two companies too so when I worked at my first agency I hired Ali straight out of school I trained him I moved to another agency I took him with me the condition to me joining that other agency was that you also have to hire Ali mm-hmm. and then because we had been practicing and we had created a synergy um, I, I said hey Ali let's just do this and he said for sure so design is your firm you started it uh, two years ago two years ago okay. almost two years ago okay can you talk a bit about your work the kind of type the type of work you've been doing uh, since you started your company and uh, the challenges that you've been facing so the type of work that we've done I think our first project was in education okay and we had to understand how digital tablets would play a role in government schools for education and in rural areas mm-hmm. so they had an interface that they had already built, but it was built based mainly on assumption of what they thought the user needed. So they hired us to actually do a proper evaluation on the field of how it's actually working and then what the improvements could be. So that's kind of how it started. So we went out, we actually talked to customers, or actually students, they weren't customers. And we really understood you know, how are they interacting with it, where the pain points were, and then we recommended interventions based on those challenges that the people in the field were having. Mm-hmm. So that, that really felt good because you're like, wow, we're actually doing something that can make a difference. Where it actually gets frustrating though is um, a lot of your ideas need to be implemented. And that's where sometimes a lot of projects fall on their face. Mm-hmm. That you do the research, you do the design, and then for whatever reason, it may not go into development or sometimes it even goes into development but doesn't go into implementation. And I think that's the most frustrating thing for a designer because their work hasn't been realized. Hmm. Right. Um, so we know that that is a challenge uh, and there's still a lot of maturity that is required uh, in organizations across Pakistan to understand the value of design. Uh, and hopefully uh, this will improve you know, over the past of time. 
a design-driven approach is kind of rooted in research, it should be. So tell us a bit about how you go about doing research and what the experience has been like in that kind of domain. So with the research, the main thing that we do first before anything is we understand the business goals, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's usually a driver. Like, what are you trying to achieve from putting something out there, right? The second thing is understanding who are all the stakeholders involved. Like, who are the players in the space? And then we go and we speak to almost every single stakeholder to really understand their needs and their motivations behind why they do what they do. So do you find that stakeholders are, w are willing to give time and are willing to kind of uh, talk about uh, or at least answer your questions? Um, are, are they forthcoming usually? Uh, it depends on... It depends on the client really, right? So usually the drivers of these projects are senior managers and it is important for them to communicate the value of what we are trying to do. It is very natural for people to be very closed initially because they're like, you know, who are these young folks coming, uh, coming and telling us, you know, how things should be or how it should work. Basically, the first take on it. But I think once you start talking to them, they realize that they're actually being heard. And when they're being heard, they start opening up to you. So it's important to give a feeling they are being heard and not being told what to do. Exactly. And the second, and the second principle, actually, of design thinking is co-creativeness. So we have to go in with that approach where we're not external consultants who are just going to go off into a, a room and you know ask a bunch of questions and then go off somewhere else and come with ideas and then just present them. We have to bring all stakeholders very much into the design process. So, so they actually aid us in giving us insights. Yes, unko humse zada pata hai. And it's important for us to actually know ke but okay, what, what do you know? Mm -hmm. And then once you bring them into the ideation phase, then they actually feel like, wow, I can contribute and I can make a difference to my organization. And then once you get that buy-in, that's when things get really exciting. So business stakeholders are one side of the equation and the other side are the actual end users or customers um, of the business. How do you go about doing research with respect to them? Uh, what are kind of techniques you use? Is it just like talking to them or how do you go about it? So depending on the nature of the brief, mm -hmm. after we map the stakeholders, we have to identify who the key players are. So who are the main users? Who are the power users? Who are the early adopters? Who are the late adopters? Who who does the service really affect? And then we kind of make a list of all these power users. Mm -hmm. And then we work with the, the client to actually get hold of these customers because they, they're most probably already their customers and 
they can have easy access to them. And then we go and actually interview them. Okay. In addition to interviewing them, we conduct focus groups. When you interview end users or customers, do you usually invite them over into the client's office or do you go out and meet them? No, we go out and meet them. And it's, it's most important to do it, like they call them context, uh, contextual interviews. Mm -hmm. So actually doing interviews in the actual space where the service exists. It makes it very much more real for the end user. So that's why we kind of do it. And then we do a bunch of other exercises with them too. If it's an app, we'll shadow them, we'll make them use it in the space. Sometimes we do card sorting mm -hmm. for, two way, uh, for two reasons. One is to, the cards which have pictures allow them to be more open and talk about individual touch points that they have. Mm -hmm. And then B is to rate or rank the cards based on where they have the most frustrations. So that allows us to know where we should create the most interventions. Mm -hmm. And one method that I want to touch upon before we do the interviews actually, is actually understanding the customer journey maps and the service blueprints. This is actually the basis upon which all our questions are actually made. Because not until we understand each touch point that the customers have and the service providers have, we won't know where to ask or how to ask the right questions. Yeah. So for the benefit of our listeners out there, uh, tell us what is a customer journey map and what is a service blueprint and what is the difference between okay. these two artifacts? So a customer journey map is essentially a series of touch points that a customer has with a service, okay. right? So for instance, um, let's take booking a flight, right? I open the computer or I pick up the phone, I figure out what flights are going in and out, then I make a booking and then I get my e-ticket or I get the ticket sent to me at the house, uh, go to the airport, check in, put in my luggage, get to the plane, take the flight, get off, get my baggage, and go home. So these are all individual touch points that a customer is having with the service. Now what a service blueprint is multiple journeys of different stakeholders kind of layered on top of each other. So for instance, if you look at a service provider, then what are they doing in order to give me that customer journey map. Like, what are they doing to, to make me have that experience? So if it's checking in, then what is the lady behind the desk doing? What's her touch point in order for me to have my boarding pass? And then there's a layer below her. So what's the touch point of technology playing in order for her to actually see her screen, right? So. You look at each layer and each layer and then you have multiple journeys sitting on top of each other and that kind of makes a blueprint of the whole system. Right, okay, thanks, thanks for the, I think, the I brief mean, intro. If, if I could show it visually, it helps, but I'm doing my best yeah. with sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we can only do so much uh, with audio and, and voice, but we'll put in some links in the show notes uh, for the benefit of people who want to learn more about uh, service design and customer journey mapping. Sure. Yeah. This is the Design Better Podcast. 
Design Better is a community initiative to promote design, experience and usability in Pakistan. So coming back to uh, research, so do you find that people are willing to kind of open up and freely share their thoughts and opinions when you're doing research? I'm talking about end users now. Yeah. And uh, or is there a period where they need to kind of start feeling comfortable to freely share their thoughts and opinions? And another question is, how um, do you do? Do you observe users when they're doing these things? How comfortable are people? Uh, you know, I assume you take photographs and, and take notes. Tell so, us about that experience. So context is the most important, right? So it depends what service you're going to design for. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when I worked with the thalassemia center, it took two weeks for the service providers to open up to me, which is a long time. Okay, and how many weeks was the total project? It was about four months. Four months. Right, okay. so it took... So about one-eighth of the time of that project's duration was... I mean, it took that time to... Just to, for them to open up and become... Yeah. And that's because... A lot of people working under senior management are afraid that if they say something, they it might their jobs could be at risk. Yeah. Now coming back to sorry, the end users is what you actually asked. Um, I think the role of the facilitator is the most important, right? How are you designing your questions that allow those customers to start getting open? And once they are open, it has to feel like a natural conversation. It's not that I'm sitting there with a, a chart and I'm going one survey question after another to get it done with. You have to make it really subtle. And then you have your, your co-facilitator who's actually the note taker. So it's, it's really driven by a conversation. And the more conversational it is, the more likely they are to open up to you. And a lot of visual aids will help them be open up, will help them open up to you, such as having the customer journey map open in front of them, having the card sort open in front of them. These visual aids really allow them to start being more comfortable with being interviewed. So it's not like an interrogation, it's more like a conversation. Mm -hmm. So, so far, what would you say has been the most fulfilling aspect of, of the work that you've done so far? So uh, one of the projects we did, I think that has been just life-changing because it was from research to design to development to implementation. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the results. And that was a project we did for the Pakistan Sign Language. Uh, and FESF ran that project. And we had to understand how to enable people who are deaf or hearing impaired to have access to the sign language, which actually enables them to communicate, which is one of the most basic elements of the human being. So we went out... Which most people like us take for granted. Yeah, most of us take that for granted. And imagine people who can't talk. Yeah. And so we went out, we understood A, how sign language is being taught in the schools, at homes, and then B, what is the role that digital is playing in, in enabling people to get sign language? So we went to the government schools and the FESF schools 
uh, they call it deaf reach. And okay. the role that digital was playing was basically in the form of playlists that teachers would make from DVD sets or folders that they had downloaded on the weekend. And then they would struggle to run these playlists every day to teach the class where they couldn't rewind forward and you know they're, they're signing one thing and the video at the back is doing something else. These are just some of the insights. And then we also realized that doing the research, there's a whole system around it. So we had been hired to do a very specific thing, but during our research, we identified several other things that could be addressed that sat outside the domain mm -hmm. of what we were asked to do, but then became a key role in the intervention. And one of that was, uh, say for instance, um, somebody didn't know a certain sign for a certain word. It just didn't exist in their dictionary. So now the platform enabled the user to actually request for a sign for a word that didn't exist before. Mm. So long story short, we did the research, we went back, we did the information architecture, we did the wireframing, we did the testing of those wireframes back in the field, we went to design, and then we partnered with a development company to actually create two digital outcomes from the same intervention. One was for creating the entire platform for a website, and the second one was to create it on a Raspberry Pi. Now for the people who don't know what Raspberry Pi is, it's a mini computer that can be plugged into any display. And then... It's a low-cost computer. It's right? a low-cost computer. Yeah. I think it's under $50 or $100. Right. And then what happens is that all these units were actually distributed nationwide. Mm -hmm. And um, when it was distributed nationwide, people all over the country now could have access to the sign language. So that's, that's, so that's really impactful. Yeah, it was really impactful. And in fact, just a month or so ago, I visited Skardu. Mm -hmm. And in a small town of Skardu, they had the Raspberry Pi unit. And we actually got feedback from the lady who's running the center. And she was like, this is a life changer. And then again, she gave me more feedback to show how it could be further improved. So this project, uh, not only was just, it was a success, it also won two awards. One was a Pasha Award, and the other one was a WISE Award in the US. So I think that was so far the most successful project and the most fulfilling project, because we actually, it was realized, our intervention was realized. Mm -hmm. And it's a living, breathing thing. So that's a great story. That, that, that is really good. Uh, what advice would you give out to would-be designers or designers just starting out? want to make a career in, in service design, user experience design? Mm -hmm. So my advice is first, um, start reading about it. That's my first advice. Okay. Understand it, see what it is. Second advice is you're, you're now looking at design as problem solving and not making anymore. So you need to start understanding users and developing empathy for them. Mm -hmm. And for the most senior designers that are in our community, in our 
industry, you need to start beginning to unlearn a lot of the things that you were previously doing. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Very difficult. To unlearn what you have learned. Yeah. Um, so when you mentioned reading, um, what, what are your top three design books? My top three design books? Um, that really inspired you and like, had a real impact on the way you think and do things. Uh, the first one, Don Norman's, of course, Design of Everyday Things. Right. Uh, the second one was This is Service Design Thinking. Okay. And now they have a service design doing, which is great. Uh-huh. And uh, the third one would be, I think, uh, John Mida's Laws of Simplicity. Okay. Okay, well, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Um, what do you think the future of design is in Pakistan? <laughs> I think you knew I was going to ask that question. Uh, I, didn't think you, I didn't think you'd ask me. That's a big question. Uh, the future of design in Pakistan, uh, that's a difficult one. I mean, how far are we looking? Because I have a vision for that, like, 15, 20 years from now. But how far are okay. we... Um, so, so there is, um, you know, th- there is a personal vision okay. that maybe you have and I have and yeah. individuals have, but uh, there is an overall outlook. Or a landscape. Uh, look at the current landscape, like how things, uh, wh- where things stand today and how things are kind of moving. Mm. Um, so, your thoughts on that? So the way design stands today it's primarily of the role of a designer as a maker and less mm-hmm. of a thinker. Mm-hmm. We're slowly moving towards this, the discipline of design as a process in Pakistan. Like, a lot of companies are catching on to it for two reasons. One reason is mainly to stay relevant because everybody else in the world is doing it. So they think, okay, we also should do it. And two is finally to innovate, to make a situation better than what it was before. I think most companies fall into the former category, is that, you know, they're kind of catching up, you know? Yeah, a lot of people are playing catch up. So the way I see this shifting in the next couple of years is more companies will start uh, deploying design, purely design departments within their company to help identify customer needs and create prototypes and also create solutions. And I see this happening maybe in like properly fully implemented into organizations in the next five years, five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. But I think in five years it'll start becoming more, more mature, mm-hmm. but in 10 years it'll reach its full maturity. The reason why I'm giving that long time frame is because there's a fundamental issue of the lack of design research in the education system. Mm-hmm. The education system is teaching students to be designers who can run Photoshop and Illustrator, but they are not touching upon the field of design research and interaction design and experience design. So until this, the schools don't catch up, we won't have the work, even though the, the companies might want to adopt and have that mindset, mm-hmm but the, just the resources won't be there to fulfill that. And I think in the next five years, 
schools will be producing these kind of students that can be completely integrated into industry. And the reason why I'm saying that is because there are schools like Habib University and Indus Valley and uh, I believe NUST and BNU that are starting to introduce these type of courses that are making people think about design and design research. So you, you've become quite a celebrity. I mean, you're on the, the, the speaking circuit a lot nowadays. You were recently at ND2C and uh, tomorrow you're, gonna, you're going to be at Disrupt on a panel talking about design. Um, so, tell, so to tell us about um, ND, ND2C, how, how was that experience? And uh, what, what, what was your talk about? Uh, ND2C was awesome. Uh, my talk was on uh, user experience. And mm -hmm. the title was UX, It's Not About You, mm -hmm. which is a play on words. But uh, it was basically trying to communicate to the people on the value of user experience and how it actually impacts the quality of people's life. And I think what was great about ND2C is that they're starting to create this kind of conversation around the different disciplines of design and, and the role it's playing uh, in day-to-day in -day activities. So and it was, it was, this year was very well organized. Um, we had a great line of speakers and I learned a lot because being, being a speaker, I got access to other speakers and I got to pick on the brains of people who are in those kind of speaking circles. So it's always important to learn from others. And I think when you're running a company and you're on the top, it makes it very difficult to actually uh, to pick on the brain of seniors. And that was very refreshing. And uh, to touch on this, what you asked earlier about this talking thing, uh, I don't know, I kind of, similar to what Suleiman said in the last podcast, it was like, I just wanted to get the word out there. Like, I'm so passionate about it. I just wanted people to know. So I still remember, like, when the first UX Pakistan happened, I literally wrote to Suleiman, this is awesome, can I talk? Mm -hmm. And he was like, who are you? No. <laughs> and then a week later, I was like, okay, if I can't talk, can I do a workshop? <laughs> so then he was like, okay, sure. And the same happened with me at a, a leadership conference, like knowledge, lead, it was called Click in Karachi. So I asked the guy in the first year, hey, can I do a talk? And he's like, why you know? And, and then uh, he said, okay, you can... The second year, he said, okay, you can do a workshop. And then the third year, he invited me to talk because mm. of the response. It was the same thing. It was like kind of a snowball effect. Like I just really wanted to get the word out there and, you know, meet like-minded people who are interested in the field. So then again, UX Pakistan, Suleiman then called me next year. Mm -hmm as a speaker, uh, same thing happened in ND2C, I first year I reached out to them, I was like, hey, do you think I can talk? And they were like, they didn't even respond to my message. And then they saw something on the UX DP group on Facebook, and then they were like, okay, I, they reached out to me the next year. And then uh, it was, I think, and then since then it's just been, I've been getting invitations and 
so I think the important lesson here is that uh, for people who want to do something, it could be anything, not necessarily just design, mm-hmm. it's so important to take the initiative, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that's what you did. And uh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, you got, honestly, you just got to put yourself out there and, mm-hmm. and be confident. Yeah, Creative Confidence, that's another book you should read. Uh, any of... Uh, so what that idea four or number yeah, three? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's hard <laughs> to tell. It depends what you... It, uh, but yeah, put yourself hmm. out there. Hmm. Don't be afraid. You are listening to the Design Better Podcast. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Do you use any of these services, apps? Yes. Which ones do you use? Snapchat. <laughs> Snapchat? Oh. But uh, not as much as... Because I'm not a Snapchat user. That, yeah. that, hence my reaction. Uh, I mean, I, out of all the social media, I was very active on Snapchat more than anything. Mm-hmm. You were? I was. And okay. now I'm not active much on any of these platforms because... A, Snapchat just became very clunky with their different releases. The reason I liked Snapchat was because I got to see what my friends were doing and, and my friends got to see what I was doing without a bunch of ads in the middle. Mm-hmm. But then Snapchat started introducing ads, so I was like, I don't want to use it. Instagram and Facebook, like, it's more of a work tool now where it's like, hey, we're doing this, come check us out. Uh, individually, I don't. I don't use it as much as I would before mm-hmm. and I think before my marriage I'd use it a lot more because I think these social media platforms they work in a way where you want to convey something about yourself and what you want people to know it's like the facade right mm-hmm. and as far as LinkedIn is concerned I used it initially when I wanted to get a job I hadn't updated it for the longest time I had a really goofy picture of myself up there and somebody actually reached out to me for some work through that and I was like, wow, that's interesting because I was already running a company at that point. So I also also felt because I was running a company, maybe I don't need a LinkedIn profile anymore. Mm-hmm. But when they reached out to me, I was like, oh, maybe I should keep this more professional. So then I changed my profile picture and I updated my profile a bit there. but. I wouldn't say I'm very active on any of these things. Hmm. Like, I, I'll scroll it, but I wouldn't engage as much. I, I like to engage... I mean, on Facebook, I would only engage mainly on groups. So, I'll, I want to ask you about the design of these apps. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Purely in terms of design, interaction design, visual design, user interface design. Which one of these services do you think is good and why and which ones are bad and what makes it bad well good I mean they're all pretty good now Uh, they work fine they get you to do what you want to do but I think Facebook's developed so much now that there's certain things that I would like to do and if somebody can please tell me how to do this because I don't know like you could make lists on Facebook before and edit those lists based on privacy and what you want people to see and not see. Mm-hmm. And I know you have something known as limited profile before and then they change the word to restricted and then I have a bunch of other lists. 
but I don't know how to access those lists again. <laughs> it's pretty complicated. Yeah, so I don't accept a lot of friend requests based on the fact that, hey, I want to put this person in a list, but I don't know how to access it. I can put them in the list, but I don't know how to access the privacy of that list. Yeah. So that's an issue. And then with Facebook, it's not like what it was before. Before I could see the feed of what my friends are doing. Mm-hmm. Now Facebook has just become junk of what are like funny memes or funny videos and things like that. So I mainly go on Facebook. It's like this morass of information. Yeah, it's just mainly to go and see funny things. Like what I would possibly use YouTube for before. And Instagram is where... I can kind of see what my friends are doing, but also check out cool things that what other people do. So it's more seeing the kind of cultural side behind what people do, because mm-hmm. I think Instagram is mainly used for that. Uh, Snapchat, was, it, just, it used to be super fun, right? Because you can capture a moment and it's gone the next day. So you can put quirky things there and not really care. Mm-hmm. And then all the filters and all allow you to have a lot of fun with your friends. And uh, Twitter? Twitter, I don't use much. I only use Twitter when I go to a conference, to tell you the truth. Like, oh, I made a doodle and I tweeted it at the person. And, oh, I followed that person. I mainly do it at that time. So if, if you need to post something out, out to the world, where would you post it? Uh, if you want to tell people about what you're doing, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, which one of these and, and why? Instagram. Instagram. So okay. I put on Instagram with a sharing, automatic sharing to Facebook. Okay. I like Instagram. And you don't post things to LinkedIn? No, never posted on LinkedIn ever. Okay, why? I don't know. Like, I feel like LinkedIn is all serious. Like, <laughs> like if I wrote a Medium article. Uh huh. Not that I've ever written a Medium article, but if I would write something, I would post that on LinkedIn. Right. So, so you post something to Instagram, but Instagram is primarily, it's, it's, it's photos. Yeah, it's photos. And, um, and that would get kind of cross-posted post, to Facebook yeah. automatically. Yeah. And would you post the same thing to Twitter as well? No. Okay. Because I feel like Twitter and, Inst- and LinkedIn are more like professional. Mm-hmm. And Instagram and Facebook are more personal. So you'd only use Twitter in a professional context? Yeah. yeah. I don't rant. And I never put rants. Hmm. Like, I feel like people use a lot of social media to do rants. Actually, I use Twitter to... People, people want to express themselves. Actually, I think sometimes I use Twitter to do that. But that's mainly aimed towards Kareem. <laughs> so I think if you, you go... You, you don't have a good experience with Kareem? No. Sometimes. I mean, is, depends, is Uber, on, the, depends is, on the captain. Is Uber better? I don't use Uber. Okay. I use Kareem. I used Uber once. You know, I, I used Uber... I tried to use Uber recently uh, when I was in Karachi and uh, the usability of the app wasn't very good at all. And the Kareem one was uh, much better. So I went for Kareem. Yeah, Kareem... And I think the vetting of the captains, I think that gives you a certain security mm-hmm. that Kareem knows who is coming to pick me up versus mm-hmm. Uber. Anybody can become an Uber driver. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of scary. Okay. So, um, and, and tomorrow you have Disrupt. Uh, what are you going to be talking about on this panel at the Disrupt conference? So it's uh, design in the age of devices. Okay. What is that about? 
I'm not exactly sure yet. <laughs> but okay. what I do know is, I mean, they sent out some kind of brief things. Is they probably want to have us talk about our take on design and mm-hmm. then the role that devices are now playing in design. Now they're almost becoming invisible and very intrusive at the same time. So what we think about ethics behind that. And just generally, I think about design methodologies and new techniques. So it's going to be interesting to talk about some of my projects on how we've used design for different devices, such as the Raspberry Pi, tablets, and virtual reality, things like that. Okay, so it's been great talking to you, Hassan, and good luck with the conference tomorrow, and all the best with future design projects as well, and mm-hmm. hope to have you on the show again. Yeah, anytime, for sure. I hope people enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Okay, thank you. This is Imran Hussain. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Design Better podcast featuring Hassan Habib. You can find out more about Hassan Habib and his company by visiting the Designist website at www.designist.io. You can also find him on Twitter at Hassan Habib S and on Instagram at Hassan Habib S. To hear more of our podcasts, head to our website at anchor.fm forward slash design better. You can also download and hear our podcast using your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can also find us on Twitter at design better and on Instagram at design better. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-B-A-I. T-H-A-K Design Better Today's podcast was produced by Timbuk2 Productions on behalf of Design Better Design Better is a community initiative to promote design, experience and usability in Pakistan So uh Say something. Hi, Hassan. my name is Hassan. Is and, it? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and, uh, you, you taught me a new word today. Uh, pigeon fest. No, no, kabooter fest. <laughs> <laughs> kabooter fest. <laughs> Never heard of that word before, but it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a kabooter infestation in a building. You want to say something? Hi, how's it going? Yeah, it's going good. Yeah. I hate the sound of my own voice, so I probably won't hear this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So you'll disown yourself, right? Okay, so this is a test to check our positions. Okay. Chickadee China, the Chinese chicken, have a drumstick in your brain, stop sticking. Okay. Let's hear how it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) So should we switch the lights off as well? I don't know if you want that. You know, and then people are going to be looking outside the... Like, there's two guys sitting in sitting the room with the lights off, right? Recording a podcast. That is going to, that is going to look really, really... That sounds pretty bad. Suspicious, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't want to try that, do you? No. Oh, neither do I. Yeah.